Infirmary Media. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week we fall back and bring you a worst of duel. I will be representing the worst of September 1978 alongside these men. First off, dueling with the worst of September 1983, say hello to Man Crush. That's right. I got the worst of September 1983. It is pretty shitty. And I wore my Losar shirt, which was my old good luck shirt, since I won last week. We'll see if that happens again. But, yep, September 1983, garbage. Also returning to the panel this week is the host of the One Headlight 90s podcast, dueling with the worst of September 1998. Please welcome back to the show, the professor, Drew Zachman. What's up, guys? I do, in fact, have September 1998, and uh, that was actually a couple months after I graduated high school, and if I'm not mistaken, pretty much everything was shit back then. (laughs) And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. You will know this week's celebrity guest judge from his impressive body of work, including Inglorious Bastards, Wet Hut American Summer, Not Another Teen Movie, and Freaks and Geeks. All rise and welcome Judge Sam Levine. Oh my gosh, thank you. I should have brought a gavel and a gown. I blew it. (laughs) Everyone else does. You don't have your own? (laughs) Nah, you know what? I got to keep... Somebody's got to keep Party City open. Give me five minutes. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five dueling decades categories, movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, We'll go to a final wild card round. All right, duelers, wake up, wake up. It's the worst of the month. So cash your checks and get up, because it's time for more Dueling Decades. Very nice. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, since I won last time, uh, you too can go. All right. So the coin toss this week, I guess, will be between myself and the Professor Drew Zachman. So let's go right down to our special guest judge, Sam Levine. Okay, uh, what's the what kind of uh, coarse language am I able to use on this podcast? Any and all of it. <laughs> okay, great. So for um, uh, so for the coin toss today, we're going to be using this uh, uh, coaster that uh, was given to me for my birthday by my friend Melanie. It says, please don't stain my table, douchebag. So uh, we're going to call this heads. And we're going to call the underside tails. Are you guys okay with that? Yeah, sounds great. Okay, am I going to flip it and someone's going to call it in the air? Go ahead. Drew Zachman, why don't you call it in the air? I'll call it. All right. All right, Drew, I am flipping it now, so call it. I'll take heads. Do not stain my table. Wow. 
It is heads. Nice. All right, Drew Zachman, you won the toss and take control of the board. What category would you like to select first? All right, I'm going to, uh, you know what? I'm going to start off. I'm going to take this trash out first. I'm going to go with news. (laughs) So on September 11th, 1998, Independent Counsel Ken Starr outlined a case for impeachment for Mr. William Clinton. Now, Starr's case finds 11 grounds, including perjury, obstruction of justice, witness tampering, and abuse of power while providing the graphic details of the sexual relationship between the president and former White House intern Monica Lewinsky. A House vote earlier in the day paved the way for release of the first 445 pages. 445 pages of Starr's report. Who's typing this shit? What do you mean? Like, like oh, 445 the, uh, pages. Who's doing this? Well, that would have been, I don't know, that might have been a computer, probably like a fucking typewriter back then. I don't know. 98 You guys no. remember, they they printed that. They printed it as a book and sold yes. it, and I own it. <laughs> but go on. And it, well, so that's part of it, right? So now, now listen, right? I don't care if you support the Democrats, Republicans, or whatever, but can you imagine doing so much illegal stuff that there needs to be 445 pages to document all of your fuck-ups? Like 445 pages. Like I'm not, I'm not, listen, I'm not perfect. I get it. But I would say if someone were to document my mistakes, I'm maybe on page 117 for my life. These 445 pages were only over a couple months. I only got 245 pages all through high school. That's, that's pretty good. Now, if that's not enough, there apparently was an estimated 2,600 pages of supporting materials that were still awaiting House Judiciary Committee review at that time. But to be fair, Clinton did apologize and said, I don't think there is a fancy way to say that I have sinned. Now, there might not be a fancy way to say it, but having someone jot down all of your wrongdoings in 445 pages, I believe, is fancy (laughs) enough. I thought Mark was looking for a cigar. (laughs) (laughs) It would have been fancy if they would have done it all in calligraphy. That would have been really fancy. (laughs) That would have been like probably like 3,000 pages of fuck-ups. Yeah. Didn't you bring like the Monica Lewinsky, like uh, Barbara Walters special or something for television once? Who, me? Yeah, somebody did. No, I, no, I, I, have, I don't think that. I've ever oh, yeah. talked about Drew that. Drew Zachman has definitely double dipped into the Monica Lewinsky pool. <laughs> 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 oh, well. Uh, the Jay Leno of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> I think I talked about Clinton once before, but it was not, I don't think it was about Lewinsky. It might have been about something else. All right, so for my news offerings, let's go over to the Los Angeles Times. The front page of the late edition of the newspaper has a stunning headline. It reads, The Who Drummer Dies. Rock star Keith Moon, 31 years old, drummer of The Who, found dead today with his fiancée, Annette Walter Lax, in London. Uh, She was still alive. He was not. Uh, So he was at his flat that he was renting. Uh, Flat 12 at Nine Cruising Place in Shepherd Market, Mayfair, London. Oddly enough, the exact same apartment Mama Cass died in. Um, he was uh, trying to kick his drinking habit and was prescribed heminevrin. Uh, when he died, they found 32 pills that he had taken 32 pills, 26 of which were still undissolved in his stomach. Um, so he had gone to a party the night before hosted by Linda and Paul McCartney. It was actually a preview of the Buddy Holly story, which is the second time in as many months that that movie has come up on this show. So 
Yeah, he had gone home that night. He had actually left the party early. He had only had a couple of drinks because he was trying not to drink. He went home, overdid it on the Heminevrin, and uh, ended up o- overdosing on that and dying in his sleep. How many pills did he take? 11? 32. Holy shit. Oh, there was 11 that were not dissolved. Is that what you said? 26 were undissolved. Oh, my God. I don't know where I got fucking 11 from. So, for the worst of news, September of 1978, I got the legendary Keith Moon dying. I mean, Keith Moon, one of the, if not the, greatest rock drummer of all time. Cut down in his prime. Uh, It's just a sad story. So, that's what I had for news. Man Crush, what do you got? Man, as you know, I don't like to bring the sadness. So again, I didn't. And I feel a little bit bad because you guys both brought September 11th and I went with September 4th, 1983. And I thought this one was fitting. Uh, may the 4th be with you. Yeah. Well, my actually, my daughter was born on May the 4th. So I'll, 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 let her, I'll let her hear that. She loves that. Anyhow, like I thought this one was fitting because hopefully the NFL is right around the corner in a few weeks. It's hard to imagine what this season will be like. So let's take a trip back to 1983 when all the talk was about one particular rookie quarterback at the time. And we shouldn't lose sight, though. The NFL draft in 1983 was one for the ages, especially when it came to quarterback position. You had Hall of Famers John Elway, Jim Kelly, who actually went on to the USFL, and Dan Marino all going in the first round. But let's not discount the other quarterbacks who were also taken in the first round. Tony Eason, Todd Blackledge, and of course... You know I had to save this one for last. My New York Jets grabbing Ken O'Brien... Over Dan Marino, some things never change. Man Crush, I thought you said you didn't have any sad news this week. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> sad for me. It's not for everyone oh, can Jets. laugh at my fucking, you know, I'm a Jets fan. What are you going to do? But if you didn't grow up in 1983, all the talk at this time was about John Elway. Not only was Elway touted as a generational talent, but he's also, he refused to play for the Baltimore Colts, who had the number one pick. And if you watch the ESPN documentary from Elway to Marino, I mean, Bill Walsh even goes on record saying that he almost traded Joe Montana for the rights to this number one pick. So, I mean, everybody was talking about this guy. So the draft came, the Colts selected Elway with number one selection, and Elway responded by telling the world that he was going to go play baseball for the Yankees because they drafted him in 1981 in the second round. Uh, But the Colts couldn't sit by because they just wasted their first round pick on this guy. So... They turned this the pick around with Elway. They traded him to the Broncos for uh, lineman Chris Hinton and a 1984 first-round pick, which ended up being Ron Salt. And quarterback Mark Herman who was just kind of a throw-in. So off to Denver he went. All right. I just had to give a little backstory for the people. But Sunday, September 4th, 1983, this was probably the Colts general manager, Ernie Acorsi's favorite day of that year. John Elway got the start for the Broncos against the Pittsburgh Steelers at Three River Stadium. And when it was all said and done, Elway went one for eight passing for a total of 14 yards. He got sacked four times for a loss of 26 yards through one interception and infamously lined up under his guard instead of the center, which is fucking And then classic. he was never heard from again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, the thing is, like, everyone knows what he did, but, like, they don't realize that first year. He didn't even come back for the second half. He bruised his elbow. They put uh, Steve DeBerg in, and uh, he had to watch Steve DeBerg actually take them to a 14-10 victory. Uh, I think things turned out all right for John Elway, uh, but he had a shit 1983. Very tough. Uh, he would start 10 games, 7 TDs, 14 picks, sack 28 times. Very tough year. So that said, be patient with your young quarterbacks. 
unless you're a Jets fan, I mean, we're eternally fucked, so it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Be tough on them. But, yeah, I got uh, John Elway's shitty first start. Not quite as bad as everybody else's, but it happened. All right, so let's go down <laughs> to our guest judge, Sam Levine, for the ruling on the news round. Okay, so I have to decide which was the worst piece of news? To you. Oh, to me. Well, this is very easy for me, but I want to explain why I'm going to decide what I'm going to decide, as any good judge would, of course. Um, Man Crush, uh, you're going to lose me, unfortunately, because uh, I am, uh, when it comes to sports, I am a diehard baseball fan. Uh, Football is a terrific sport. I I know a lot about it, but I just can't get into it the way I do with baseball. So while I understand that may have been an upsetting piece of bad news for you as a football fan and specifically as a Jets fan, it doesn't mean very much to me. Uh, Drew, uh, as I mentioned before, I owned, I read that horrible Kenneth Starr report. You know, I was a 16-year-old kid and I thought, ooh, I'll be smart. I'll know what's going on in the news. And I read that thing. And let me tell you, 400 pages, you say, can you imagine 400 pages of, of sins or whatever? No, there's like two pages of sin, but it was written by a bunch of lawyers. That's why it drags on and on and on and on. It was nonsense in there. Absolute nonsense. But for me, uh, the best music ever is classic rock. And uh, although he died before I was born and became a fan, it was one of the all-time great losses to rock and roll the day Moon, Keith Moon, died. Um, I mean, you talk about potentially the greatest rock and roll drummer of all time. I would say Moon, John Bonham, Neil Peart. Number one, yeah. two, and three, and the order is entirely up to you, and no one's going to argue either way. So for me, that is the greatest loss. That is the saddest news of these three stories. No questions asked. You know, I just had this conversation with somebody today. Have you watched the new Bill and Ted's movie yet? I have indeed. I was a little disappointed that they didn't use Keith Moon. Maybe it was because he overdosed. That's why they didn't want to put him in there as the drummer. But I was like, I mean, <sighs> yeah. yeah, it bummed me out too. I thought about that. Like, you know, they, they, they made up a fictional drummer of sorts. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought about that too. And I was like, yeah, well, I don't know between Bonham yeah. and Keith Moon, they both died in a very sad way. But then I was like, well, wait a minute. Um, Joan of Arc didn't exactly die in a pleasant manner either. No. I, I suppose you're right. <laughs> She's kind of in the first movie. So I don't know. I feel like, uh, uh, I mean, not that I want to go off on a tangent, yeah. but I feel like they wanted this movie to be less about historical figures and more about Bill and Ted and their legacy and their family. Right, right, so right. I don't begrudge them that. But, uh, but yeah, no. Uh, t- yeah, it doesn't get much sadder than, uh, than Moon and Bonham. The sad news like that always wins these rounds in the worst of. I had the John Lennon shooting at the end of last year. Oh, God. Those are all guarantees. Like, that's a slam dunk win for the round. But where are you going this round, Mark? Right. But it's like you don't even have to have been alive. I wasn't even alive in 1978. (laughs) And just hearing about it 30 years later, you're like, fuck. (laughs) What a loss. What a loss. All right, so I pick up a point, take control of the board. Uh, you know what, guys? I think we're going to go over to television, do some television round early on here for a one-point round. So we're going to go over to the Tallahassee Democrat, September 23rd, 1978, in a review that says, Apple Pie Leaves a Bad Taste. This is the debut of a TV show called Apple Pie. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this. Chances are you haven't, because they only filmed seven episodes and only aired two. 
And then it was immediately taken off the air. Now, the show does star Rue McClanahan, and it also stars Dabney Coleman, Jack Guilford. Oh! So, already you're like, ooh, Rue McClanahan. Solid cast. Yeah, you're ready to go. She actually gave up an opportunity to be on soap to do this show. Now, the premise takes place during 1933, during the Great Depression, where Rue McClanahan's character decides she wants a family. So she puts an ad out in the newspaper looking for other people to come live with her and be her new family. She gets a grandfather, who is this old blind man. Uh, She gets herself a new husband, who's a con man, and a couple of kids. The original script actually called for a character that kind of walked around the house in shackles and chains. Luckily, they ended up cutting that. (laughs) <laughs> but it still didn't save it. So the, it only aired September 23rd, 1978 and September 30th, 1978. Only two episodes ever to air of Apple Pie. My selection for the worst of TV round. It's a gem. Drew Zachman, over to you. Yeah, that's pretty bad. So speaking of pretty bad, I have September 21st, 1998 was the debut of the much anticipated The Brian Benben Show. And the last episode was on October 12th, 1998. So they actually wound up filming nine episodes, but only four of them actually aired. And basically the sitcom centered around Brian Benben, who was a news anchor in L.A. and was replaced in favor of a younger person. And the show aired Mondays on CBS. And if you blinked, you missed it, given it only aired four episodes. And the show was created by Robert Borden, who also created the George Lopez show uh, several years later. And Borden also wrote for Roseanne from 92 to 93, by the way. But turns out this show just didn't click. And honestly, I don't remember this show at all. But then again, in 98, around that same time, I was busy watching the home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. So that's what I was busy doing. (laughs) On September 8th, man. September 8th. (laughs) Oh, that was so much fun to watch. But that's what I have. The Brian Ben-Ben Show, which aired from September 21st, 1998 to October 12th, also 1998. Was September 8th the day that McGuire broke the record? Yes. 98, 98. So easy to remember. That day was, I think I've told this on the show before. We were at a Pearl Jam concert at the Meadowlands, and they stopped the show mid-song so Jeff Ament can throw a ball to Eddie Vedder, and he hit the ball into the crowd and announced to the whole audience that Mark McGuire just broke the record. I mean, that's how big baseball was at that point, that they stopped the show. Also, Eddie Vedder huge baseball fan yeah cubs fan yeah as am i so yeah it was it was amazing it was great like it's mid-song it was like nobody cared it was like wait what happened <laughs> what's going on eddie vetter cared man because yeah. <laughs> sammy sosa was in the hunt yeah so he cared nobody cared that he stopped the show we cared about the record right though, oh for okay. sure okay great yeah yeah okay. we were good with that uh but let's go uh september 30th 1983 and unlike freaks and geeks that deserved Far better treatment from NBC. Here's a show that only lasted a paltry eight episodes and got canceled by NBC in December of 1983. And not only was the premise of the show utterly ridiculous, but it was also scheduled head-to-head with Dallas. And if you were to dig back to old 1983, we'd see that Dallas was the number one show on television that season. As a matter of fact, Dallas, they were either number one or number two in ratings for the previous three seasons. So this was either a feeble attempt by NBC to somehow pull over some of the demographic from the Dallas fan base, or it was a mercy killing. But since TV guy would rate this as the 15th worst show of all time, I'm going to go with the latter on this. So after 
five episodes of the show. NBC decided to cease production. They took the show off the air in lieu of another failed NBC experiment from that year called Mr. Smith, which is a show about a talking orangutan, which had even worse ratings than this gem did. (laughs) So after Mr. Smith stunk up the joint for a month, NBC brought this show back to finish out the last three episodes. And when it was initially taken off the air, the show was ranked 63rd overall in the ratings. So I'm not even sure why they took it off the air for sweeps and replaced it with Mr. Smith, which is another horrible show. I mean, things to ponder at night, but anyhow, like I, and I suppose for the people keeping score at home, NBC was shit right here. Cause CBS was killing it in the ratings. They had an 18 share. They were tops. ABC had a 17.9 and C or NBC was coming up in the rear with a 15.4. And of course, this is before like all the big cable and stuff. So even though those numbers seem large, that's all people were watching. Those, those three networks. But here's a little snippet from Fred Rothenberg of the Associated Press. And he titles this one, Ludicrous Manimal Likely to Become the Skunk of the Season. And I quote, Ah, to have been a fly on the wall when NBC execs were telling one another what they really thought of Manimal. An embarrassing and worthless program about a man who transforms into animals to solve crimes. And uh, I'm not even shitting you. Like, if you've never seen this or clips from this, it's true. It was a serious crime drama about a British college professor. And by the way, uh, Rothenberg would call Simon <laughs> McCorgandale, I think his name was, a pompous, condescending counterfeit James Bond. Uh, but he would transform into, like, panthers and shit to solve crime. Matter of fact, on that episode on September 30th, a masterpiece, by the way, he would transform into a panther, an eagle, and a snake mm. before he slid up uh, Ursula Andress's bathrobe at the very end. I give you Manimal, everyone. Lasted a whole eight episodes. Fantastic show. Panth- yeah, panthers do solve a lot of crimes, and they're so common, like, you would just see one and be like, oh, look, there's just another panther. Oh, panther. They just blend right in with regular society. Well, yeah, the pink panther, of yeah. course. True. Also correct, <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. where they got it. I actually watched this years ago because it came out on a DVD set, I think by Scream Factory, like maybe 10 years ago or so. And I wanted to watch it again before making this selection. So I went on YouTube because I can't find the DVD. And all of the copies on YouTube are all in Spanish. So it must have a huge following in South America, maybe, (laughs) but not so much here. All right, let's toss it down to Sam Levine for the judgment for the television round. Uh, I'm sorry. I the the judge has to. I have to ask just a couple of follow up questions. I should have written this down. How many episodes of Manimal aired before it was taken off the air? They took it off after five, and then they brought it back five. after a month, and then they played the last okay. three. So it got eight total, and then eight total, and then drew the Brian Ben Ben show that aired five episodes before getting pulled. Uh, it aired. It, they filmed nine, but they only aired four. They aired four. Okay, yep. and uh, Mark. Uh, was it Apple Pie? Apple Pie. Aired just two. Right. That film seven aired two. So here's the thing. I um, I was on a, a medical show, a medical drama uh, seven years ago that aired seven years ago on NBC called Do No Harm. Um, that name doesn't ring a bell to most people, but our, our key art that you saw on the sides of buses was our very handsome lead, Stephen Pasquale, with his hands covering his face. <laughs> Why do you cover the face of the handsome lead? I don't know whose decision that was. 
But then it was it was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing. So an alternate version of his face was on his hands like the it was I don't know whose idea that was. I wasn't consulted. Uh, but when that show aired, we were the lowest then we since I'm happy to say given up this record. We were the lowest rated mid-season launch in the history of, uh, I think, broadcast television. Uh, and we aired but a lowly two episodes as well before they pulled us. Now, eventually they brought us back, but not really. They just burned off a few. So uh, I, I hate to do it, but once again, Mark, I'm going to have to go with, with Apple Pie, wow. not just because it only aired two, but because Rue McClanahan and Dabney Coleman. Yeah, had such how potential. do you miss with that? Such how do you miss with those with those leads? How do you miss with Simon McCorkingdale? <laughs> See, there's there's your problem. I'm not a genre guy. So I can't I even go know with Simon Mortingdale and Manimal. <laughs> and, uh, and look, I love Brian Benban. And I actually remember kind of watching that show. And it it wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen. But uh, but at least he'll have Dream On. Correct. Right. Yep. Oh, great show. You know, he'll always have Dream On. And isn't he married to Madeline Stowe? Correct. Or at least he was. I know he was. Hopefully still is. So look... He's Brian Benman, he did okay. He did okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with this misfire, uh, featuring Dabney Coleman and Rue McClanahan, two comedy legends. Before we get too far off television, because I know a couple people in our Facebook group had also asked this question. When you guys were doing Freaks and Geeks, I think the biggest problem for mm-hmm. me, because I watched it when it first came out, was I could never find the damn show. Yes, like, that is correct. That was did a you, huge problem. Yeah. Like, did you guys, were you aware of all the changes that they were making? They were like, ah, we're going to put it on this night. We're going to do it. Or were they just doing it? I certainly was. Oh, I mean, it's aware in terms of like, I knew it was happening, but in terms of like any of us having the power to stop it from happening, no. Right. I mean, Judd used to get into crazy long phone calls while we were shooting in the middle of the day on the phone with the NBC executives explaining why we needed to air more than three weeks in a row for fans to find us because the internet was in its infancy. There was no such thing as streaming. Netflix wasn't a thing yet. I mean, fans, it was still appointment television back in those days. DVRs didn't exist yet, really. So it was either fans knew that the show was on, they knew where to find it, and they could expect to find it week after week after week. And then, you know, after you'd aired, say, six in a row, uh, you'd take a little break, but then you'd air reruns. Right. You know, uh, giving the fans a chance to catch up if they missed any. And they never, ever, ever gave that to us. Never. I think we. I think the most we ever aired consecutively was three weeks in the same time slot. And then, you know, this was the one disastrous year in 99 when NBC had the rights to the World Series. So they pulled us off for, you know, two weeks to air that. Uh, then there was, I mean, very sad, and I'm, I'm not using this as, you know, oh, how dare they, but there was a plane crash that happened on the West Coast, a domestic plane crash, and that preempted us into uh, time zones uh, on one night that we were supposed to be airing. So half the country couldn't, didn't get a chance to see that episode. Um, and yeah, and then they shifted nights on us. They moved us from Saturdays to Mondays with not much fanfare for the relaunch. So the few fans who were still looking for us on Saturdays didn't know that we'd been moved to Mondays. And then once we got moved to Mondays, I think, 
I, I think maybe they aired two in a row before preempting us again for uh, Maury Povich hosting uh, 21. See, Which I was thought... their answer to ABC's Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Right. Like, I thought you guys got canceled because at the time, I remember if I had VCR Plus, I had one of those where you put the code in mm-hmm. and you can, you know, it would, whatever yep, time that was slot VCR it was. Plus. And it would record the wrong show. And I was like, oh, they must have yeah. just taken it off the air because every time I check my tape, it was some other shit, like 60 minutes or something like that. Yep. Yep. So no, it was yeah. a... Uh, this was, uh, look, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not going to get back into it, but there were people, person who didn't want the show to go because it just didn't mean anything to them. And they made decisions that dramatically increased the likelihood of, of the show not being able to succeed. Quick question. I don't know if this will be a quick answer, but like, where do you think the show would have went if you had the second season? Was there talk of that? Oh, there's been plenty of talk. And I mean, we've, we've talked about it at length on, you know, in interviews and, and, and podcasts and reunion panels and stuff that we've done over the years. And it gets tough for me to remember everyone's story, but vaguely Kim Kelly was going to come back pregnant, uh, you know, from the dead tour. Uh, Bill uh, Haverchuk was going to become more of a jock under the tutelage of, of coach Fredericks Sam was going to lean away from being nerdy and, 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 you know, Dungeons and Dragons and try to fit in with more of the, the cooler kids. Uh, Neil was going to lean more into the ventriloquism and swing choir as he went through a very painful divorce at home with his parents. Um, th- those are the ones that I remember, uh, you know, so it was, you know, they, they had great ideas for season two that, unfortunately we'll never really get to fully realize but yeah they they had a lot a lot of good stuff that i think would have continued to be really interesting and entertaining and you know tough to watch god i see a lot of common ground in the guys from stranger things and your trio for sure i mean i i do not know the duffer brothers i i love stranger things i you know eagerly await the, the the last season uh but i would i would be surprised to hear that they were not freaks and geeks fans. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, totally. That that first episode I saw, that's immediately what I thought of was you guys. Sure. I for mean, for good or bad. I know, mean, but tough. that's what it came out. Yeah. Like. No, no, no. And I no, 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 no. Look, I mean, every every band inspires the next one. Every show inspires the next one. It's not like Paul Feig and Judd Apatow invented the Midwest in 1980. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. Right. They right. just that was their vision of it, which is of course going to look and feel like a lot of other people's memories of the Midwest in the 1980s. So uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that that show is out there. I love stranger things, like I said, and I, I'm not suggesting anything other than I would find it weird if they weren't fans of the show, just because clearly this is a time period and a, a a feel, you know, geeky guys, Midwest 1980s that speaks to them. So my gut tells me they were fans of the show, and that's all I'm saying. Yeah, that's how you know you're doing good work. When yep. people yeah. start copying what you do. That's why you see well, so I'm not many retro 80 <laughs> yes. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Inspired. I, I don't Inspired. know. I, yes. Inspired. Those guys have certainly had enough. They've had enough lawsuits and baseless accusations. <laughs> that, that idea wasn't theirs. This is not going to be another one. No. No, oh, no, no. All right, I had to ask. All right, we're, we're moving off TV. All right, so I pick up another point heading into the final one-point round. 
you know what, gentlemen? Let's do some hot products. The worst of hot products. So I found an article in the Billings Gazette, September 5th, 1978. Kind of an interesting article. It says, they call him the King of Pong. And he claims to have games that are educational and have medical uses. Uh, it's about this gentleman that they call the King of Pong. He sat in the in the plaza suite the other day with another grown man. Both of them giggling, yelling occasionally and frantically as they played a brand new video game called Outlaw. Now that's what I have for my hot product. It's the Atari 2600 release of Outlaw. Now the King of Pong that they're talking with is a gentleman by the name of Nolan Bushnell, who's one of the founders of uh, Atari and would go on to be the founder of Chuck E. Cheese. The medical advancement he talks about in here is about the game Pong and how they're using it in hospitals now to help paralyze victims so they can move their hands and with elderly patients for their memory. But that has little to do with my pick. My pick is Outlaw for the Atari 2600. Now, if you guys had this game, it was one of the, the first shooters. The game itself, though, well, it was a clone. It was a clone of a, of a foreign game called Midway's Gunfight. There were 16 different variations of gameplay mode on this game, but the reason I, I think it's the worst is because this was the single worst Atari game to own if you were an only child. Because this game was only fun with two players, as you would have two cowboys that could go up and down on the screen, and they would shoot. Now, for some reason, back in the Wild West, they had body armor, because you could take up to ten shots before you killed your character. But if you were an only child and had no one to play with, the best you could do was to shoot at a stationary, non-moving cowboy or a target that you had to hit 99 times as it went up and down. So the most boring Atari game ever. I give you Outlaw in case you want to do some uh, blocky target practice. So September 1978. All right, Drew Zachman, what do you have for the Hot Products round? Whew. Mine, uh, mine came out on September 26, 1998. And I, so I live in, well, I live in Pennsylvania now, but a lot of times we go to the beach in New Jersey, usually like Ocean City, New Jersey. But I feel like if you ever walk along any boardwalk, there are a few arcades there. And if you ever see people dancing around like fools, that's most likely because they're playing a game called Dance Dance Revolution, which was released in Japan on September 26, 1998. And wound up making its way to North America in March of 99. But, uh, yeah, Dance Dance Revolution. I, I've never tried it. I feel like I would hurt myself somehow or look like a fool or hurt myself looking like a fool. So this game, it's horrific. Uh, the only I think one of the good things I can say about it is that it appeared in the criminally underrated Grandma's Boy. Nick where Swardson. Nick Swardson, <laughs> yeah, smoked the competition as he always did. But this game was developed by Konami. I love Konami. Uh, you know, they made Blades of Steel. They also made, I think it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I love those games. And yeah, this was not one of those games that I liked. But yeah, anyway, if you ever want to embarrass yourself, this is one surefire way to do it, at least for me anyway. Personally, I can find much cheaper alternatives. But <laughs> Dance Dance Revolution, September 26, 1998, made its way in Japan. If you're not good at that game, it's really fun to watch people play that game like i know mark probably knows this i don't know sam if you watch professional wrestling but kenny omega is ridiculous at dance dance revolution it's it's yeah. fun to just watch him do it it's insane dude's yeah. like six two six two professional wrestler doing dance dance revolution 
Like serious yeah. as all hell. Yeah, but on the other hand, not so much fun watching me do dance dance. Yeah, well, no, I wouldn't want to watch you do. <laughs> so I mean, no, actually, it, that might be fun too. <laughs> now, Kenny. So then, can can Ken take out Nick Swardson? That's the question. That's the uh, challenge right there. It's a different style. They have two distinct <laughs> styles. Mm-hmm. So it's a, that's a good question. All right, man crush. What do you have for the hot products round? All right, so let's go to September 22nd, 1983. The same guys that produced the classic parody Gold off the Wall Street Journal and not the New York Times are back at it again with a special parody episode or a special parody magazine, rather. This time, they're making a parody of Playboy, something that hasn't been attempted since the Harvard Lampoon Gents did this in 1966, the company known as American Parody and Travesty Corporation. They released its Playboy parody on September 22nd entitled Playboy. And it featured the gorgeous Barbie Benton on the cover. So if you, for anything, you bought that thinking it was Playboy, but it wasn't. Uh, the magazine itself sold for a mere $2.95, which is close to $8 in 2020. So I suppose that's on par for the times. That being said, I found an article in the newspaper where they were charging as much as $13,500 for a color ad. That's forty two thousand dollars in twenty twenty. So that wasn't so on par for the times. And that said, if you couldn't swing that color ad, you could do a black and white ad for ten thousand dollars. This was their first magazine under the new company, and they were promising one million copies sold. And since I didn't see any of the other four promised issues, I suppose that didn't happen. So let's take a look inside this ninety six page extravaganza. They had an interview with Jesus Christ, where he claims to be more popular than the Beatles. He had an article on the 15 greatest rocks in America. Uh, then you followed up by the history of sex and architecture. Then the explosive pictorial, the girls of the PLO. <laughs> then you had Hugh Hepner debunks the myth of herpes. Then they had an article entitled Wrestling Gate. Is wrestling fixed? Followed up the whole big culmination, some real investigative journalism here. Bedroom crisis, premature ejaculation during masturbation. I give you Playboy magazine, September 22nd, 1983. Wow. Hey, Sam, are any of those articles in that Ken Starr report that you read? <laughs> Most of those were reprinted in the Ken Starr book, but nobody okay. read it but me. I'm the only one who can tell you <laughs> they're in there. So, Playboy. Playboy. As soon as you said that, I'm like, that's got to be the magazine that Kermit the Frog takes into the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) When I initially found it in the newspapers, like the first uh, one that was talking about the ads they were selling, I was like, oh, let me look this up. This has got to be like, you know, go on eBay. It's going to be 100, 200 bucks. They're still selling for like 15, 20 dollars. So it's not even a collector's item. Double shitty. There's that. Wow. Wow. All right. So let's go down to our judge, Sam Levine. See who wins the hunt products round. Okay, um, here's here's the thing about this. In in having to compare these two things, we got two video games and an ill-fated magazine. Um, the uh, the thing about it is, the magazine and Outlaw were both destined to be failures, and then were failures. Uh, Outlaw was not a particularly popular game. I do remember playing it as a very young man. I think one of our neighbors had it. 
uh, and I played it with my neighbor. So I never played the single person version, but that sounds horrible. <laughs> um, you know, what if you're like, so it's fine, you have a sibling, but what if your sibling is like a little sister who has no interest? Then you might as well be an only child when it comes to that game. Right. So that's very sad. Play Boar, you know, that's that, 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 that sounds like it was one and done. It was a miserable failure. But for me, the real failure of these three is Dance Dance Revolution because that should not have succeeded, and yet it did. That is the greatest falling ass backwards into success I've ever seen, and it aggravates me to no end this day. Dance Dance Revolution (laughs) is essentially a piece of exercise equipment in the last place in the world where people want exercise equipment, a fucking arcade. That's like putting a goddamn cardio chess machine in the middle of a Planet Fitness. And somehow it's a success. I think you might be onto something I've here. never understood this. I am. I have never understood the success of, hey, man, let's go to the arcade with the other bunch of fucking nerds and let's show them how in shape we are by playing this game that is essentially Simon, except with our bodies. <laughs> I guarantee you Dance Dance Revolution is secretly responsible for more heart attacks in arcades than corn dogs. so for me the greatest failure and the biggest threat to the geek gaming community is and always will be dance dance revolution shame on you for existing you are a failure how dare you be a success (laughs) all right drew zackman you pick up a point get on the board but more importantly you take control of that board heading into our first two-point rounds all right so i am going to go with I'm going to go movies here. And the one I am choosing, and you're going to have to stick with me on this one here, came out September 25th, 1998. And cashing in on the newly reinvigorated teen horror slash slasher genre, uh, we were handed a movie called Urban Legends with a bleach-haired Joshua Jackson and the Noxzema girl, Rebecca Gayhart as well as Tara Reid and 30 Seconds to Mars singer and guitarist Jared Leto. Now, this movie had a budget of $14 million and hauled in $72.5 million of the box office, which is that's a pretty good ROI. I'm all right with that. Now, it also spawned two follow-up flicks, Urban Legends Final Cut, which came out in 2000, and then the direct-to-video Urban Legends Bloody Mary, which came out in 2005. Now, they also, uh, in February of this horrid year, they announced they were going to do a reboot because uh, 2020, I guess. But anyway, why is this a worst of September 1998? And and here's why. And spoilers coming, by the way. So if you haven't seen Urban Legend and you want to, maybe hit pause on the show and go watch it and come back to us. But this is what bugs me about this. So the plot really makes no sense to me like at all. Rebecca Gayhart's character is upset that Alicia Witt and her character and her friend were messing around while driving and ran Gayhart's boyfriend off the road, killing him. So Gayhart goes on a killing spree based on urban legends, pretty much killing anyone and everyone, apparently. Now, I just watched this the other night because I thought it was good, but no. And I and I saw it when it first came out, potentially in theaters. I, I remember seeing it very early when it came out. It was either like in the theater or as soon as it came out on VHS. And I thought it was good, which is why I was like, oh, let me rewatch this. Here's here, But here's the thing, though, right? It really chat my ass. 
Gayheart's going around killing all of these people, right? Now I checked. She's five foot six and rather slender. You know, I'm not saying, you know, she's not strong, but there's no fucking way that she's doing all this killing and fighting off all of these people and carrying around dead bodies by herself. Like, there's no way that happens. And I'm watching this movie. I'm like, there's no way she's just, it's just her by herself. I thought she had an accomplice. Nope. She, you know, they show a bunch of bodies in the SUV. Like, how did she carry all those fucking bodies in the SUV? It makes no sense to me. And it was like angering me. As I'm watching this movie, I'm like, how did she do all this? I thought, you know, there had to be somebody else, but there wasn't. And they show, uh, you know, actually, and they move around campus so quickly to commit murders in like 73 different fucking time zones. And and why kill all those like random innocents? Like she starts the movie killing the one girl who was the driver of the car that killed her boyfriend. Okay, like, all right, you want to get revenge there. And she could have killed the other girl, Alicia Witt's character, like real early in the flick and call it a day. Nope, she kept going. I don't get it. I, I just remember I was stoked to watch this the other day, and now, well, now this is why it's the worst of September 1998, because I'm angry that I watched that movie, and it was pretty terrible. <laughs> That's all I got. Sorry, I'm angry. <laughs> all right, Man Crush, what do you got for the movies round? All right, so let's go uh, September 2nd, 1983. I'll give you a movie that is bad. Urban Legends, come on, man, 72 million? It's a good movie, bro. But the money doesn't mean anything. I know it doesn't because I had that <laughs> argument a couple weeks ago. It sucks when you're in the driver's seat. But September 2nd, 1983, here's a movie, Striker. I mean, there's no point in trying to be coy about this pick. No one would have any idea what the fuck I was talking about. But if you look at the cover of this one, I am positive myself as a young child was suckered into renting this one when I was a kid. But I had zero recollection of this movie upon my screening of it last night. The movie looks like it was made for like uh, straight up like made to video market. That's not the case. Looking at this old newspapers, it was actually released to theaters on September 2nd, 1983. And I found it in 70 plus theaters and drive-ins that played this movie. And some of the papers even had decent sized ads for this movie that made it look fucking amazing. But trust me, it was not. It was a turd. If you're a fan of Mad Max 2 Road Warrior, then you'll hate this one. It's a blatant ripoff instead of fighting over gas they're fighting over water in this movie and one of the first things you'll notice if you feel like wasting 90 minutes of your life that is there is no water to be had yet their clothes are somewhat clean you'll notice like right as the movie begins there's a a female they chase through this entire movie she's got like a pretty clean blouse on that's like white it's like how the fuck does that happen if you have no water and on top of that if there's no water, wouldn't everybody be dead? Like, yeah. there would be no movie. And they have no water. Like, what? And I shit you not. Like, I fell asleep three times during this movie last night. So, like, if you're looking for, like, a good ambient replacement, this is the winner right here. The main dude, his name is Stryker, is the most boring lead role I've ever seen in a movie. His first interaction in the movie is just, like, straight awkward. It almost seems like he forgot the line. The script is horrible. The acting's horrible. There's a decent action scene if you can make it all the way to the end, if you can make it that far. I feel like I should be given a medal for having finished this movie, even though I did fall asleep three times, but I did see it all the way through the end. But somehow this movie made $900,000 at the gate, like about $2.5 million in 2020. So I'm really curious to find out if people actually like sat through this entire movie or if they bailed because I'm guessing they left. 
total garbage. And I like garbage movies, but this one is shit. It's boring as fuck. And that's Striker, September 2nd, 1983. That would have been awesome if it was like maybe a spinoff of Ted Striker. Striker! Striker! <laughs> I feel like I, that would have potential. I would. I want to see, you know, like the backstory just about well, that, Well, that right? would never happen because Ted Striker has a drinking problem. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So let's go over to my horrible movie offering. Uh, released September 29th, 1978. Although I did find an article in the record from Hackensack, New Jersey, that had the movie opening up at the beginning of the month. Yeah! Jersey represent. So uh, this one is... The 1978 quote-unquote classic Avalanche, starring Rog Hudson, Mia Farrow, and Robert Forrester. It's one of those great 1970s disaster films, and this is probably the worst one of the bunch. It cost an an estimated $6.5 million, which was the largest box office failure for New World's Pictures, and it was its most expensive production ever. Uh, During the filming, they used styrofoam, to simulate some of the snow from the avalanche. Now, they filmed this out in Durango, Colorado. After filming was done and the snow all melted, the city of Durango, Colorado was still covered in styrofoam. They had left it there all over the forest. Now, if you've never checked out Avalanche, it centers around vacationers at the Winter Wonderland as they struggle to survive after an avalanche crashes into their ski resort. Now, the one thing and the one major takeaway from this movie was this is before the time of green screen when they were still using blue screen. If you're going to use blue screen to film white snow and you place that blue screen transparency on top of white snow, you're going to see the blue. And the movie came out looking absolutely atrocious. It's a mix of actual snow, blue screen snow, and large pieces of styrofoam all at the same time. (laughs) So it looks horrible. The, it has probably the most anticlimactic ending of any disaster film I've ever seen. Spoiler, nobody gets the girl in the end, and the movie just ends. So, yeah, it's just an atrocious film. Check it out. It's Avalanche from 1978. That does sound terrible. All right, so let's go over to our guest judge, Sam Levine, for the judgment on the movies round. Okay, this is a tough one, um, because I love movies. That's, that's, that's like my thing. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the movie trivia Schmodown at all. I used to play in that for, for years uh, on Doug Benson's Doug Loves Movies podcast a lot. So I, I am a film fan. And to some degrees, I know all of the films that we're talking about. I have seen Striker. I have seen Urban Legend. I have not seen Avalanche, but I, I know of Avalanche. Here's my take on this and, and, and how I'm going to get to where I'm going. I think the worst of these is going to be urban legend, but let me tell you why. Um, Striker and Avalanche were both trying to cash in on movies that had recently been very successful. With Avalanche, the whole disaster movie explosion of the 70s is to blame for that movie being a thing. With Striker, you are 100% right. They were desperate to cash in on Mad Max. But even in the time of my youth, some 20 years after the fact, no one was talking about those movies. They came and went. No one has ever been dumb enough to say, oh, Stryker is my favorite movie, or Avalanche is a great movie. No one has ever said that. But in my life, I have heard stupid, stupid people 
say how good of a movie Urban Legend is and how they think that's the best one of all those late 90s, early 2000s slasher picks. I have heard people say that out loud and shame on them. <laughs> yeah. That's sad. I can't. I can't. How can I? How can I hear that? And be expected to continue holding up my end of the conversation like I'm not, I shouldn't just be walking away. Um, but to answer a few questions uh, that you guys had about those movies, because I, I did want to get to these. Um, obviously, uh, Mark, you have never been to Big Bear uh, in April when they put the fake snow on the ground. That looks <laughs> yeah. blue. There's some blue in there. Man Crush, uh, you forgot about dry cleaning. You don't need water for that. In the post-apocalyptic <laughs> times? Come on, man. Hey, man. dry cleaning? In post-apocalyptic times, if men are still shaving every day, dry cleaners are still open. <laughs> George Jefferson was still making a killing. That's exactly right. And finally, Drew, while I agree with you, it is very unlikely that Rebecca Gayhart, by herself in her five foot six frame, was moving around all those dead bodies. You forgot about PCP. Mm. <laughs> that notwithstanding I'm going to say Urban Legend is the greatest crime of those three because here we are 2020 and they're thinking about remaking Urban Legend yet no talks of remakes of Striker or Avalanche and I'm grateful <laughs> not yet not yet not um, yet give them time <laughs> give them time Let's go. now what if they offered you a role in the reboot of Urban Legend would you flat out say no well, guys, you're also assuming that they're not going to offer me money to do this. If you're asking me if I'm going to be in the remake of Urban Legend out of the goodness of my heart, no. All right, well, obviously they're going to pay you, but like, there's got to be something in the back of your head as an artist where you go, eh, do I want, I don't know. Like, Yeah, let's not give artists that much credit. I'm not sitting here in a mansion talking to you guys. I'm a day trader. i got to make ends meet. <laughs> All right, Drew Zachman, you jump out to the lead and you take control of the board going into the final round, the music round. Yeah, see, now I'm glad I watched Urban Legend the other day because otherwise I might have skipped over that. But all right, music, September 21st, 1998, all around the world, gentlemen and ladies listening, 50 to 60-year-old women everywhere felt a little tingle as the album Forbidden Dreams Encore Collection Volume 2 was released. Now, who can make those ladies feel that way? There's only one man, guys. And that man is the long-haired, mustachioed, new-age keyboardist, Yanni. <laughs> Fucking Yanni. Uh, this 33-minute and 11-second compilation album peaked, peaked, guys, at number 7 on Billboard's top new-age albums chart. Like, I think that's the definition of a worst of when you rank seventh in basically the billboard category that caters to your fucking music. Like, who, like, what other new age artists are there? Like, Enya? It's like Yanni and Enya, and that's it? Like, I, I don't know. John Tesh. Uh, okay, John Tesh. All right, so there's three. <laughs> there's three. Uh, and one of the reviews. Concert lineup. You saw John Tesh in concert? No, I said it's a solid concert. Oh, lineup. sorry. <laughs> One of the reviews I read on this was from Chuck Donkers of All Music, and he said, Yanni's early albums for the private music label are minded, I'm sorry, are mined for Forbidden Dreams, which spotlights his famously dramatic, even flamboyant synthesizer style in its embryonic stages. 
I don't know about you guys, but I don't think I would classify Yanni as flamboyant. Like, like that's like David Lee Roth or like Stephen Todd. That's like flamboyant. That's like, you no know, eccentric. Flamboyant for the new age community. It doesn't take much. All right, okay. All right. So he didn't, now he didn't specify that. Maybe that's what he meant. So here's the thing. Like, I don't know if the keyboards, like when he would press a note, like flames would come out. But now I'll get into that because I don't know if my mom had this album as this was around the same time as the Macarena, which was on repeat in my house. Mm. Paula, mm. thank you. But she listened to Yanni often in our house. I think she had the live at the Acropolis, which came out in 1994. And she also had the VHS for live at the Acropolis. And I remember walking through, you know, the family room as she was watching it. And he was like playing his notes on the keyboard. I don't remember seeing flames come out of there. So I'm assuming his new album also had no flames coming out of his keyboard, thus rendering him non-flamboyant. Doesn't he but, ride like a horse to the stage or some crazy uh, shit like that? Probably, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. That's I, mean, I, I, going that's, for. I don't know if I call that flamboyant, but I mean, of all the great albums that came out in 94, 94 was a killer year for albums, right? You had uh, Super Unknown. You had uh, Jar of Flies by Alice in Chains. Love that album. You had Dookie. You had Smash by The Offspring. You had, uh, there, there was like a million albums that came out. Uh, Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails. This was the one being played in our fucking kitchen. Uh, and I hated this guy growing up basically because of that. Also, his album names in general are more suited for softcore porn. He had albums named Reflections of Passion, Truth of Touch, and my favorite, Sensu- Sensuous Chill. And your anyway, mom listened to these. Uh, I don't know if she listened to those, but she had Live at the Acropolis, <laughs> and it was on fucking repeat until the Macarena came out in 97. So. <laughs> wow. My friend Alex's mom loved him too, so it must have been a mom thing. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. 50 to 60-year-old women everywhere were, uh, yeah. It totally is a mom thing because my mom did the exact same thing. She used to call it, quote-unquote, listening music, and it was just stuff that she'd have on the background. When you said Live at the Acropolis, that was one of the CDs that my mom always had, too. Interesting side story to that. She had ordered a CD that she thought was, quote-unquote, listening music from BMG once. You know, she thought it would be, you know, something like Yanni. And I come home one day, and there's a CD, and I'm like, where'd this come from? She's like, oh, I ordered it from one of the tape clubs. I thought it would be, you know, like soothing music. It was the greatest hits of Soundgarden. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's awesome. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, September 21st, 1998, Forbidden Dreams, Encore Collection Volume 2, which means there was a Volume 1. So yeah, anyway, cut your fucking hair, Yanni. I'm done. (laughs) All right, guys, so for my music selection, I'm throwing the rules right out the window. I'm doing something we have never done on this game show before. Uh Uh-oh. For my music selection, I'm picking four albums. Jesus, what are you doing? All right, you'll understand why. (laughs) Because on September 18th, 1978, four solo albums were released. That probably should have just been one album from the band Kiss. That was the date they released all four of their solo albums. Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Peter Chris, and of course, Ace Freely. Now, Casablanca Records had Kiss under contract. They were the number one selling artist at the time for Casablanca. So they put together a massive promotional campaign of $2.5 million. And to ensure that all of these albums would receive platinum status, they shipped a million records of each of the four. Now, shipping platinum and selling platinum is totally different, as they only sold about $2 million combined, which was about what they sold from their previous album, Love Gun. So, 
What ended up happening is Kiss fans just bought one album from their favorite Kiss member, and the rest sat on store shelves, mostly the Peter Chris and the Paul Stanley albums, where the uh, Gene Simmons album had one notable hit, Radioactive. That one ended up selling the most, but the best album out of all of them by far was Ace Frehley's album, which gave us the hit single Back in the New York Groove, which out of all four of these albums, probably the best song. But I don't want to go into too much detail, but this was basically the beginning of the end for Kiss. Uh, Paul Stanley called this move a band-aid on a gaping wound. It was kind of just them trying not to lose Peter and Ace at the same time, and then they were getting ready to go through that transition, and you know they decided that those guys just had to leave the band. So that's what I have for my music selection. The four Kiss solo albums that really should have just been one album that would have been mediocre at best so september 18th 1978 that's funny you mentioned that because i was very close with going with uh was it psycho circus oh yeah oh that would have been a good contrast (laughs) but the but the uh the yanni one really just angered me so that's why i went with that (laughs) all right man crush i can't wait to hear this what do you got for the music round all right so i'm gonna one up mark so we go uh september 18th 1983 and, you know, either you're going to love this one or you're going to hate this one. And even if you're a diehard fan of this band, it's a tough pill to swallow because the music on this 11th studio album isn't really the issue. It's the presentation, especially from this band. There was always about the presentation. And I still remember when they had the news conference on MTV, the album was coming out and it was gut wrenching to me as a kid, as a five year old. I watched them in their cartoon that came out in 1978, which we'll get to. I love these guys. And then they pulled the curtain back, and I was devastated. And that's the reason why I picked this. So Kiss went on MTV (laughs) and held a press conference with their new unmasking. And seeing these guys sans makeup was more frightening than when they wore makeup. I mean, and it was all timed perfectly. They had the albums released. Everything was on September 18th. So marketing-wise, this is probably what the band needed to do to stay relevant at the time. Like Mark was saying, sales were sagging. The band was changing. And even though like Ace and Peter Chris weren't on Creatures of the Night, it was a way better album than Lick It Up. But by using the charade of losing the masks, Lick It Up would go, and they'd sell twice as many albums going one times platinum. But it was not a good album. I'll leave it at that. But... I'll I'll leave out a whole bunch of detail on this just to let you guys know that they all it, everything came back together. February of 1996, the original four, Peter, Chris, Ace Freely, everybody else, they came back full garb, showed up at the Grammys. Then they went on the Kiss Alive tour for 13 months and became the top grossing tour of 1996-97. And if you look at a majority of the set list for that tour, they hardly ever play a single fucking track from lick it up (laughs) now i realize like peter chris and ace freely were not in the band when they released that but that's a testament to how good good kiss was you know and like there's those years in the middle i know like there's some of their diehards listen to it and even like gene went on record when they were talking about this tour because a lot of people didn't like it and uh they interviewed him in a newspaper and he said the band looks different now but strangely, everything seems the same. There's still an abundance of panties and bras being thrown on the stage with girls' phone numbers on them. But the music was not good. And I mean, 
you can put your blinders on if you're a huge Kiss fan, but it was not Kiss. It was it changed, obviously, and that's what I have. Lick it up. Wow, I yep. had no clue you also had Kiss. That's hilarious, man. Wow. Sometimes it happens like that. All right, let's go down to our celebrity guest judge, Sam Levine, for the final judgment on this game. Well, what we have here in this final round is um, it's an unfortunate situation that sometimes happens uh, in the Oscars and the Emmys, which is you'll have um, multiple actors from the same movie get nominated for the same award. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, the worry is they'll cancel each other out. Because if it was just one of them, even though everybody liked that movie, and, and they go, oh, well, I love that movie. Oh, and yes, that person was great in it. Oh, but also yeah. so was this person. And so they, they kind of split the votes. And then, it, you know, it allows a third person to sneak in there who maybe, you know, got much uh, a smaller percentage of the votes than they normally would have needed to get to win that award. I'm I'm not personally a huge Kiss fan. Um, I, I am a I'm a I'm a small Kiss fan. Uh, I mean, I know I know the bigger albums. I know the bigger tracks. Uh, I've never seen them in concert, but uh, I could I could tell you the good Kiss, the early Kiss, from the later Kiss, the good stuff. I remember the world tour in, in 96, 97. That was, that was huge. When that came through Jersey, man, I had cooler, older friends who got tickets to that and were really excited. Um, but, uh, but it's tough for me then to, to pick between lick it up being such a disappointment. And, and then those four solo albums, especially because uh, back in the New York groove, I do like that song. So that is sort of a good yeah. thing to come out of that. Where on the flip side, I didn't have a parent who listened to Yanni. So I didn't have the constant, every time I walked through the living room, having to hear Yanni live at the Acropolis. But what I did have was a best friend at the time whose father loved Yanni. Like, loved him. (laughs) Like, would have made love to him if he was given the opportunity (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I do have a memory of going to Great America, which was in Jersey, or rather Great Adventure, which was in Jersey. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, Jackson. In Jackson, New Jersey. And this guy's dad offered to drive us there. And that's a solid, oh, you know, no. like hour-long drive. I know where this is going, man. <laughs> and and this was probably in 1998, and so I could not tell you that it was live at the Acropolis, but I'd be willing to bet we listened to volume one and two of <laughs> Forbidden Dream. So these Forbidden Dreams, they haunted me for a minimum of two full hours. So I'm guessing we listened to both volume one and two twice each. <laughs> they were only a half hour. So I still cringe when I think about Yanni more than I'm going to cringe when I think about Kiss missing the the mark on the solo releases and lick it up. So for me personally, I'm going to go with Yanni Forbidden Dreams Volume Two is the biggest nightmare to come out of these these three options. You see the rage that comes out of of poor Sam here, and and so this was this so this album came out in '98. So back then I was like I was really into heavy music. Like I think Fear Factory was on steady rotation. I get more rage 
out of hearing Yanni than I do listening to Fear Factory. I feel like I should actually put Yanni <laughs> on my workout playlist instead of like As yeah. I Lay Dying or like Slay or anything like that. But yeah. it's it's the the memories that Yanni brings out of us. <laughs> Fucking Yanni. <laughs> Fucking Yanni. You guys need to sit down with somebody and talk this out. <laughs> For real. And you weren't there. You weren't in the car. You don't know, man. I told you, my friend Alex's mom used to love Yanni. She also loved country music. So it was country music and Yanni every time we went to his house and his mom was home. Which is a fucking weird dynamic to go from Garth Brooks to, she loved Garth Brooks. It was like, so you'd hear like the dance and then you'd hear Forbidden Dance right after it. It was some shit. (laughs) But it didn't bother me that much. I was just like, whatever. But hey, sensuous chill. I'm burning this shirt, by the way, because I got shut out. This this shirt, it's like Aww. some 20 something years old. Thank you, Sam Levine. It's going in the fire. I am so sorry. <laughs> it was a rough, very, very few good things came out of 1983. You know that. And that's why I should have won. Uh, yeah, but you didn't <laughs> pick the worst stuff. Like if you if Jaws three, excuse me, Jaws three D had come out a little later in the year, you might have been able to sneak that in there. It's Striker, bro. They're fighting for water. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> and Striker with a Y, in case people. Yeah, yeah, Striker with a Y. <laughs> wow. I guess they couldn't get the rights to the other one, dude. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on. Tell us about. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, I mean. We talked to Clint. Clint sent us a thing with Immortal. Do you work with Tony Todd and all these people on this movie? Tell us about Immortal. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I personally didn't get to work with Tony Todd. I met oh. him. He's as, no, Tony's as fucking awesome as you hope Tony Todd is. Uh, but the movie is, it's four short films uh, that are all, you know, combined together uh, because they all have very similar themes about, you guessed it, immortality. So uh, mine is, I believe it's the last segment of the four. Uh, and it's, it's a fucking crazy segment, man. It's a head trip. It's about a guy who basically did not realize he was immortal until he's involved in a pretty shitty accident. Uh, and, then, and then sort of comes to terms with how do I, what is going on with me? And uh, the accident itself leaves him pretty bothered. So he, he, he kind of wants to go down that route and, and, and seek a little bit of answers, I guess. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a head trippy segment. They're all really head trippy segments. And, uh, mine was written and directed by a really talented guy named John DeBach, who I've known a while now. I've worked with him before. Um, each segment has its own, uh, feel to it. And, uh, and yeah, man, I, you know, we shot it a while ago and, and and they sort of you know wanted it to uh, uh, it's it looks really good like we we did a lot with you know given the constraints of independent filmmaking and so I'm really happy with the way it all looks uh, and uh, and yeah it's on VOD and DVD uh, uh, released on September first. So whether or not you're listening to this in the future, the present, or the past, <laughs> given if you may be a time traveler or not, I don't know. This will be out September, September 2nd, 1st. so it will be out. Perfect. <laughs> so uh, uh, if you're listening to this, it is already available. It's called Immortal. Uh, and, and the good news is you don't even have to watch it all at once. If you're the kind of person who likes to take things a segment at a time, each one's right. about 30 You can minutes. just skip to the last segment and watch Sam's part. If, hey, if that's how you want to do it, I'm not going to stop you. 
but I think you're doing yourself a disservice. They are all pretty cool. Do they all tie in together? Or is it like a straight like anthology type like body it, bag? It's like- it's more or less of an anthology. There's not really a through line between them other than immortality. Uh, but uh, yeah, man, if you like kind of head trippy stuff, if you like uh, genre stuff, if you're a horror fan, if you're a thriller fan, if you're a sci-fi fan, I, I think there's something in this for everyone. Even if you're just a straight drama fan, like these are all pretty dramatic. So uh, I, I think it's worth checking out, uh, especially now, given how few, uh, you know, new movies have actually come out this year. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, like it's it's been it's been it's been a struggle if you're a big movie fan like I am, like looking forward to going to the movies every every weekend, every other weekend, seeing something new. So I'm really happy that this movie is getting a release this year when we, we need some more good movies. So I think this is one of them. And absolutely, like the cast is great too. Mario Van Peebles in this, yeah. Like you said before, Tony Todd. Mm-hmm. Definitely check that out. So it'll be like where on like Voodoo or like Prime or. I I don't know. I my guess is anywhere you buy movies normally, when when you're buying new VODs, I'm guessing it's on Apple. I'm guessing Voodoo. Uh, I'm guessing Prime, but I don't know for sure. But if you're having trouble finding it, just Google Immortal you know, uh, 2020. Uh, and I'm sure you can figure out a place to, to watch it pretty easily. I will definitely be watching that. And I know you got to get out of here in a minute. Do you have anything else you have coming out or coming up that you want to plug real quick? I have some other stuff, but no release dates yet. So I'm always hesitant to say, yeah, it should be out later this year. And then (laughs) it's 2024 and it still hasn't seen the light of day. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, like I said, the movie trivia schmodown, that's still a thing. So it sounds like uh, uh, the, the guys who, uh, you know, the, the, the people who would enjoy this show would definitely enjoy watching some, some hardcore movie trivia. It's also a mix of movie trivia, knowledge, and wrestling. So nice. you've got kind of big characters, big flashy characters, big flashy theatrics. So if you like either of those things even a little bit, check out the movie trivia schmodown. Uh, there's, there were still doing matches, um, uh, you know, virtually now, and I've been a, a, a faction manager this whole season, <laughs> which has been a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, if, if, if you're listening to this, check out movie trivia Schmodown and, uh, Doug loves movies. I'm going to do another episode of that pretty soon. So you can check me out there. And otherwise, I guess I'll see you in the market guys. Cause that's, <laughs> you can catch me every day, nine to five, never miss a closing bell. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, bro. Any time, if you want to come back on, because you're a fantastic judge, you're very knowledgeable, love to have you back. Oh, thank you. It would be my absolute pleasure. This was super fun, dudes. Thank you. All right. Have a great night. Yeah, nice talking to you, Sam. Yes. All right. I'm out of here. Take care, guys. Don't fight each other once I'm gone. Take care, Sam. Have fun. Be safe. All right, duelers. Well, I guess we'll end this episode right here. But don't worry, if you've missed an episode, you can always go back over to our website and subscribe to the show, www.duelingdecades.com. And in the meantime, while you're on the interwebs, head over to facebook.com forward slash duelingdecades, where you can join all the other duelers, and then you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. Now, speaking of all the other duelers out there, want to say thank you to everybody who showed up to our live trivia night last week. It was a great success. It was awesome hanging out with everybody. I know myself, Man Crush, and Drew Zachman here had a great time. And congrats to Trevor once again. 
his last time he came from behind to win. This time he just dominated from like question two he on. He did. He jumped on top of that leaderboard and just stayed there. It was he was a staple. And we had a little bit of movement between three and four, but the top two were the whole way. Uh Tommy C, of course, came in second. And congrats to Stacy for coming in third. It was her first time playing. Of course, the other two were veterans. Stacy came out of nowhere. She knocked off the champ, the reigning 2019 champion of our overall trivia that we did last year. Uh, Brian M. got knocked off. Uh, got only came in fourth. I know. So if you think you can compete with these people, we're going to do another one next month. So come back out. The uh, information for that will be on our Facebook page. Yeah, that was fun. And Drew Zachman, thanks a lot for showing up for this episode. Why don't you tell everybody what's going on on the One Headlight 90s podcast? Yeah, so we have uh, some new episodes coming out very soon. Uh, they're actually on the editing room floor right now. We have uh, some 90s basketball we're talking about. I just recorded an episode with uh, my daughters talking about Lion King from 94. So that'll be that'll be fun. The girls love doing that. And uh, a couple other things coming up too. And then also I have my new project coming up. Hopefully within the next month, I would say it'll be out and ready to go. But a new podcast I'm working on called Songs Gone Wrong. We have about seven episodes already recorded. We're just getting things kind of cleaned up, getting the uh, the I's dotted, T's crossed. But if you want, you can check us out on Twitter for now. We'll have the website up in a little bit. But on Twitter, it's called or it's at Songs Gone. So you can add us there and then we'll have uh, some news coming out probably within the next, I would say, two weeks. We'll have uh, probably a more official announcements. But that's what we have going on over here. All right, Duelers. Well, make sure you subscribe to those shows as well. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.